Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. We are recording our episode this week a day early. I think some of you might be aware that tomorrow is the NBA draft lottery. So with that in mind, we've decided to push up our draft deep dives episode for this week a day early. So I am here as usual with my draft deep dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Monday afternoon? Nick, I am fantastic. As you said, the lottery is rapidly approaching. Uh, We are almost 24 hours away and very excited to at least get a more concrete order and kind of start putting pieces into place. It it should be fun and hopefully we get just a little bit of chaos tomorrow. (laughs) Just a little bit. Congratulations on your favorite team, the Minnesota Timberwolves, not being in the lottery. I certainly cannot say the same. Yeah, certainly I, cannot I, say the same for my favorite team, but you know, at least one of the franchises has to be consistent, right? Exactly. So I, I, I'm used to treating this day as like the Super Bowl, uh, but I, I, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm, I'm an outside observer this year, so I, I just get to sit back and enjoy whatever happens. Yeah, I saw a few people on King's Twitter posting that it was a national holiday for Kings fans, <laughs> which it basically is. I mean, <laughs> 16 years running at this point, you know, not. Not that I'm bitter or anything. No, it's not coming through at all. No. Anyway, so we have the draft lottery tomorrow, but today we are going to start by talking about, Tyler, your most recent Friday Screener article over at No Ceilings NBA on a prospect that we have talked about sort of in passing when talking about other prospects throughout this season. But today we are going to highlight him as the focus of our podcast today, and that is Arizona's Christian Coloco. Now, when we talked earlier about big man debates, we were sort of mainly geared around Ismail Kamagate because that was the player you'd written about that week. So it's interesting because at the time, it seemed like there was a sort of block of four centers with Mark Williams, Kamagate, Walker Kessler, and Christian Coloco. And at this point in the draft process, it seems like Williams has kind of separated himself from the other four guys in that group. But... Certainly one thing that all of those players have in common is that they're all great rim protectors. And today we are going to talk specifically about Christian Coloco and his rim protection. So I'll throw it to you now. What were your thoughts on Christian Coloco's rim protection when you dove deep on the film for your latest piece? The thing that really stood out to me on, you know, just going back through the tape on almost every defensive possession was just his discipline at the rim where with these elite shop lockers and rim protectors so frequently we see these guys make awesome rotations but then they're just jumping at every shot faker every layup and every floater and you know sometimes it ends up in a huge block but so frequently it ends up in them just being out of position and giving up an offensive rebound and a putback or following a guy and Coloco rarely did that. So the fact that he was able to be one of the most dominant and impactful defensive centers for the entire season on one of the best teams in the country all year, while showing just NBA rim protection characteristics all the way throughout, it was really, really impressive because, you know, guys like Hassan Whiteside, for example, always put up huge block numbers. But their defensive impact really isn't all that positive because they were just out there hunting stats. Coloco didn't did that or didn't do that. It was timely rotations. It wasn't, you know, it was not biting on fakes. It was meeting the guys at the apex of their shot. So it was the consistency, the discipline, and the overall composure and awareness that he showed 
on a possession-by-possession basis that really stood out to me. So Hassan Whiteside is sort of our go-to for overly jumpy shot-blocking centers, but I think another player that's sort of indicative here is Jaron Jackson Jr., who Mm -hmm. just led the league in blocks, but he did that with an enormously high foul rate. And so, you know, the distinction here between even someone like Jaron Jackson Jr., who I strongly believe is a very high-impact, positive defender, unlike Whiteside, who, you know, some games he'd be great and other games he'd just be leaping at shot blocks and leaving plays open, but... You know, with someone like Coloco, it's not just that you're getting a guy who's jumping out at all these shots and trying to block them, or even with Jaron Jackson, someone who has that shot blocking ability and has a severe positive impact on defenses, but can get a little too jump happy and foul prone because of it. You know, it's really useful when your sort of big man rim protector can do all of those rim protecting things without falling into either the sort of over-aggressive Hassan Whiteside category in terms of getting out of position or the over-aggressive Jaron Jackson Jr. category of just fouling all the time. Yeah, and like the the discipline and the not biting on fakes is huge for Coloco, and he does that a lot. But, you know, like all players, every now and then he does bite on a fake. And I think what separates him from a lot of young rim protectors is his ability to keep his verticality even when he does mistime his jump or bite on a fake because you know it'd be really easy to bite on a fake and then you know wildly swat down and that's where you commit a foul and that's what we see from jaron jackson all the time and that's what gets him in foul trouble all the time where it's super easy to get him off the floor and then once he does get off the floor he panics and tries to use his length to commit or to to block the shot instead of just getting in the way and deterring it. So even on the rare occurrences where Coloco, you know, is getting, you know, fooled by a shot fake or something, he's keeping that verticality and just being really disciplined about not fouling. So it's the, the rotations of positioning and just the discipline to, to, you know, obviously stay vertical, not foul and time his jumps incredibly well most of the time. So I know that you put in a ton of work to get to this, so I'm not going to stomp all over it. I'm going to let you go ahead and actually walk through the numbers. But (laughs) something that stood out to me very early on in the piece was just how much worse opponents shot at the rim when Coloco was defending as opposed to when he was off the floor. So again, you put in yeoman's work to get to (laughs) these numbers. So please go ahead and share your magnum opus of Bartolomeu with the world. Uh, Yeah, so I mean, for starters, his block rate, which we've talked about a lot of the times as one of those defensive metrics that seems to translate pretty consistently, um, was the 10th highest in the country at 10.3 for true high conference um, programs. And then when we look at his uh, rim protection numbers, when he's on the court compared to off, opponents shot 49.9% at the rim when he was on the court, which is just an absurd number. And to really show how impactful he individually was, that number jumped by almost 10% to 59.4% when he wasn't on the floor. Um, On top of that, opponents only attempted 31.3% of their shots at the rim when he was on the floor, which was the 340th lowest percentage in the country. And um, yeah, sorry, that that's it. Uh, but like the, the, those numbers are really telling because a lot of the times with really quality college room protectors, the scheme can do a lot of work. The opponents can do a lot of work and really influence that number, but to have a differential of 10% is astounding. And then 
the fact that opponents just didn't even want to bother taking shots at the rim when he was on the court either. It's that that's what rim protection is all about. When we say rim protection is more than just blocking shots, that's what we're talking about because it's, yeah, the blocks are an important figure, but the ability to plummet an opponent's shooting percentage at the rim and then also plummet just their overall attempts at the rim, that is so important. Yeah, there's a difference between shot blocking and shot deterrence, which yes. is, you know, shot blocking is okay, you spike the ball back, great. But shot deterrence, you know, it's like they're not even willing to challenge you at the rim. And, you know, those numbers you mentioned, NBA average is around like 60-ish percent for most centers. I've certainly seen worse, um, but... You know, 60 is right around average. I think average is something more like 61%. So Arizona as a whole, even with Coloco off the floor, was pretty close to average in terms of rim defense. And then they dropped to just elite in rim defense when Coloco entered the game. And, you know, as you showed with the numbers of players not even wanting to try those shots when he's at the rim, you know, it's not just that you're lowering the efficiency of those shots around the rim by 10 percentage points. But it's also that you're lowering the frequency of those shots pretty significantly. And, you know, even 50% is pretty good in terms of, you know, shooting efficacy, right? So, you know, getting those shots at the rim at a 50% rate is obviously worse than, you know, making it a 60% rate. But it's that combined with the fact that they're even trying fewer of those shots in the first place and trying more of the mid-range jumpers and floaters that have been slowly excised from non-star players at the NBA level. Yeah, and that the forty nine point nine percent field goal or opponent field goal percentage is it, it's impossible to not be impressed by that. But the, that thirty one percent of shots only taken at the rim by opponents when he's on the court that that number just constantly keeps jumping out at me because you know opponents just don't even they they realize that it's not worth challenging him and they realize that taking what should be the best shot in the game was one of the worst shots they could possibly take. So they didn't even bother challenging him because it was either getting blocked. He was either staying vertical and it was nearly impossible to get him in foul trouble. So it was just a lose-lose situation for most of the time for opponents when they did, you know, inevitably challenge him inside. It, it just, it didn't work. And it didn't matter if it was guards, if it was wings or if it was, you know, even larger centers that he was going up against, it would everyone had a really, really miserable time trying to score on him at the rim. So I want to move on to a different section of the article when you were talking about something that we've actually talked about a decent amount on this podcast, probably most when I was talking about Travion Williams, but the idea of traditional post-ups being sort of excised from the NBA game as a scoring mechanism, but post-up still being very important as a passing and playmaking mechanism. And that's where I think, you know, when we were talking about Coloco in reference to Walker, Walker Kessler earlier this year, I think one of the biggest differences between them is that Coloco has a lot more mobility, which makes it easier for him to shut down those playmaking opportunities out of the post, as opposed to someone like Kessler who had an astronomical block rate, but just wasn't as good when you stationed him anywhere other than like five feet away from the rim. Yeah. I'm, Coloco's mobility is, I don't think he's the most mobile center in this class, but his awareness and timing on rotations was impeccable. His timing on when to detach from his man and rotate down to the baseline to cut off the drive or a cut um, 
just his overall awareness of what the offense was doing, what they were planning, where the ball was and where it was going. It was like he was in sync with them and just really identifying everything that they were trying to do in the paint and reacting immediately to it. And, you know, it obviously led to him cutting off that first drive or that first cut. And that first rotation is so important, but his ability to then recover and when that cutter inevitably passed out of, of that drive and Coloco, you know, being able to recover back to his man to then contest a floater in the middle of the lane or something like that. That's where it's like, okay, this guy's on another level of processing speed and overall defensive awareness, because for so many college players, that first rotation is enough. It's okay. Well, I, I read it and why did I my did my team- job? We're done here. Exactly. And my, my teammates should be covering for me here. And Coloco's teammates rarely ever did that for him. So he was the one tasked with making every single rotation on the interior. And he consistently did. And that, that ability to move his feet that way um, was really impressive. So that, as you mentioned, was sort of not the key, I guess, but certainly the one of the key factors in how good he is at defending the pick and roll. You know, he's, and we'll get to the switching aspect of his defense a little bit later, but with the pick and roll aspect in particular, I think, you know, I was comparing him to Walker Kessler earlier. And I think, again, a big difference there is that with someone like Coloco, you know, if he has to stay with, eh, I mean, you know, if he's got to stay around the basket, but also sort of at least hedge out to the ball handler, that's, a lot more defensive activity than you get from sort of your pure rim down, you know, stuck in the paint kind of shot blocking centers. And you know, that's another way to show that Coloco is not that kind of player. Yeah. And so just going back to, you know, I, I previously said, I don't think he's the most mobile, but I really like his footwork and he's just always on balance and does a really good job of sliding them and not crossing his feet. Um, that, lowers his foot speed pretty dramatically but he does such a good job of on that first slide of bumping the ball handlers you know out a little bit from the lane so when they do attack him off the dribble and try to take it to the rim they have a more arced path which takes them a couple extra steps and then that's where coloco can use his length to recover so even though he's you know initially getting beat by the quicker guard he's able to take a more direct route on his recovery because of his footwork and then his length and is able to meet them at the rim pretty consistently. I'm truly shocked that you mentioned positive footwork <laughs> as. Uh, I, I find um, a way to, I, it's, I get, I weasel it into every single conversation. It, no, no NBA, surprises by now. NBA deep dives podcast, take an expletive <laughs> deleted. I mean, shot. I am. Anyway. I can't help it. <laughs> Anyway, the so I sort of teased at it earlier, but I am curious to what you think about Coloco as a switch defender, because from my perspective, I don't think that's what you should be trying to do with him. Yeah. But I also think that there are a lot of defenders who would struggle more with that kind of defense than he would. So, you know, when we were talking in the Ismail Kamagate podcast about those four big men, Kamagate, Williams, Kessler, and Coloco. Kamigate is definitely the least consistent on defense, but I think he's probably the most mobile, but I would put Coloco second in that group in terms of potential ability to be a switch defender. I think in terms of the centers in this class, the guy who has the highest upside as a switch defender is Jalen Duran in my mind, just because he's the most athletic of any of these big men. But of the four that we've sort of been talking about, I think that 
Coloco's right behind Kamigate in terms of his potential as a switch guy. Again, I think Kamigate is a lot more inconsistent on defense overall, but I think he just has quicker feet than Coloco and therefore, in theory, has the potential to be better in that kind of scheme. But I'm curious for your thoughts on Coloco in a switch system and sort of how he stacks up against some of the other center types in this class. Yes, yeah, so I actually like Mark Williams the most. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. I, I, I don't like any of these guys to like be a full switch. Um, I don't think any of them are like that. None of these guys are like Jaron Jackson um, on the perimeter. And I guess I'm, I'm assuming this is putting Chet in just a completely different conversation. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to bring Chet into this conversation because <laughs> he's like kind of a four, kind of a five, probably won't play five yeah. at the NBA for at least a couple of years. So... These the four that I brought up, including Jalen Duran, those five I'm willing to bet will play primarily center from their first year in the NBA on. Whereas Chad, I think he's probably going to play with another big man more often than not for at least the first couple of years of his career. Yeah, but okay, if we're cool. talking Chad, if we're adding Chad in the conversation, he's clearly the best switch guy. I think. Yes, yes, thousand percent. So w- with Chad excluded, I I still like Mark Williams the most, and then I from a athleticism standpoint. I think Kamigate would be next because I, I do think he's a little quicker and more nimble on his feet, but I worry about how much he gets lost in space and just, he really struggles with that cat and mouse game and really, you know, timing when to go out on a guy, when to drop back. He's still just really raw in that area. So maybe long-term, um, you know, he makes a lot of sense at two, but immediately I would probably lean Coloco. Um, and, you know, again, I don't want any of these guys switching full time, but late clock pick and roll situation where, you know, point of attack defender doesn't have time to get over the screen or whatever. I do think Coloco will be good enough um, hedging and showing on that guy and either bumping them wide on their drives, giving him time to recover, or at least using his length to contest a pull up jumper. Um, so I, I, I do think Kamigate and Coloco are kind of right there at two and three. Then I'd probably go Jalen Duran. I I think he's really heavy footed. Um, I I get vertically, he's probably the most athletic out of all these guys. Um, But I I don't really trust his feet in space. And then I I think Walker Kessler is a pretty easy uh, number five. Yeah, I'm not bringing any of these conversations up to say bad things about Walker Kessler. I think he's a very interesting prospect. It's just he doesn't you know, that's not part of his game. You know, he's, he's very drop coverage, hundred percent. Exactly. He's pure drop coverage. And the other four guys, you know, they can switch if need be. I think I think really the way that you phrase it is exactly correct, which is if he needs to, right? right. If he needs to for, you know, the final three seconds of a possession, okay, sure. But if you're gonna put him in a scheme where he's switching one through five, you're gonna have a bad time. And that's gonna yeah. be true <laughs> yes. with any of these guys. But that is interesting that you think of Mark Williams as the best guy of those center types in terms of a switching scheme, because I think he's definitely the most fundamentally sound. I think he's, you know, the most NBA ready in terms of his defense, but, you know, especially when you're just talking about lateral mobility, I think that Kamigate pretty clearly has him beat. And Mm -hmm. the Duran front is interesting because I think I buy into him laterally a little bit more than you do, but definitely with Duran, the highlight real stuff is his vertical athleticism, which pretty much nobody can match. Yeah, and I, I was just really underwhelmed by Duran and Space this year. Um, you know, I, yes, I, I, this isn't an indictment on him. I still have him like top ten or right around there. So I, I, I there, you know, there's so much potential with him, and he just desperately needs 
coaching um, because he, he was kind of similar to Kamigate where once drawn out into space, he didn't really know what to do. Um, so I, I think Coloco and Mark Williams, um, their awareness and their processing speed defensively is in a league of their own compared to, especially compared to Kamigate and Duran. Um, but I think Kamigate probably has the highest physical skills um, but the just the the fluidity that Mark Williams moves his feet and flips his hips and just is always on balance and seemingly making the right decision, um, I would trust him more with that. So yeah, and it, it's tough because it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if four years from now Jalen Duran was a stud at switching and stuff like that. I just think he's still pretty tight in the hips and a little heavy footed. Um, with extra training, coaching, uh, you know, mobility training that that could improve and you know he's supposed to be going into his freshman year in college this fall so there's a lot of room to grow for him yeah duran's definitely got time to develop coloco obviously i mean all these guys do they're yeah in their early 20s at the oldest but you know if we're if we're comparing an 18 year old to a 20 year old there's in theory a little bit more developmental ramp up for the 18 year old but i do want to sort of shift things back to coloco here now, something that you mentioned specifically that we've talked about a bit, but I do want to sort of bring back to the focus here is the difference between just making the initial rotation versus what Coloca can do, which is, you know, making multiple rotations on the same play. And something that I think is more of a thing in the NBA with the shorter shot clock is, you know, teams will play excellent defense for 20 seconds and then things fall apart right at the end. And all of a sudden they give up a great shot because they don't, you know, figure out what to do for the final four seconds. And with Coloco looking at his game in college, you're already seeing his ability to make those multiple rotations and not sort of let the defense get lost on the play. Yeah. And he's just kind of the ultimate safety net because and the, some of the perimeter defense from uh, Arizona's wings was pretty putrid at times. And when they got beat on lazy closeouts, they didn't really work to recover all that often and that would put Coloco in you know 2v1 3v1 3v2 situations on a really regular basis so he he had plenty of practice at making that baseline rotation to cut off the drive then rotating back to his guy and then rotating back to the other block where you know the the touch pass was made to the opposite opposite cutter so you know he he really covered up so much for that team that I I, I think really gets slept on a lot. Um, and that ability to make those multiple rotations in a really quick and short period of time, um, like you said, it, it's going to come up in the NBA a lot because there will be a lot more long closeouts because the shooters are better and that will induce a lot more drive and dump situations. And his ability to immediately read and react to those is going to be incredibly valuable. So now that we've talked some about Christian Coloco, let's sort of wrap up today's podcast by talking about a couple of his teammates. So as we mentioned at the top, tomorrow is NBA Draft Lottery Day for any of you who have been listening to this podcast and yet somehow we're not aware of the fact that tomorrow's NBA Draft Lottery Day. But I wanted to talk about the other Arizona prospects. And you know, if I'm bringing this in with a lottery-related intro, the place to start is with Benedict Matherin, who was someone who was, you know, fringe-ish first round guy last year and then came back this year, had a monster sophomore season for Arizona. And 
is someone who I think is pretty clearly going to be a lottery pick. I have had a very difficult time with Benedict Matherin over the past couple of months because I am all the way in on him as a prospect. I think he has incredible 3 and D potential. I think that he's someone who I don't think he has the highest ceiling in this draft, but I think that he has a very high floor as a solid contributor, probable like fifth starter type. But right now I have him down at 10 on my latest big board. And every time I look at it, it feels too low. Yet every time I look at it, I also feel like, okay, well, who am I going to bump down to put him higher than 10? So I think with Matherin more than almost any other prospect in this class, it's been very difficult for me to sort of find a way to say, you know, I really do buy in. I think he's going to be a great prospect, but also, you know, the guy I have right ahead of him is Jalen Duran. And I think Jalen Duran just has so much higher of a ceiling that if you're taking a swing in the lottery, I think you probably want to take that swing on Duran instead of Matherin. But it's really difficult for me because, again, every time I look at my big board, I feel like I should bump Matherin higher. But the question, as always, with any of these questions, you know, just as it always is for, uh, I can't believe that guy didn't make the All-Star team. I can't believe that guy didn't make the All-NBA team. So, right. okay, who are you taking off <laughs> exactly. instead? Because it's only, you know, there's only so many of these spots, right? But where do you have Matherin at this point in the process? Yes, I, I have him at 11. Um, and I have pretty much the same read on him that you seem to, where I fully buy into the shooting um, and like the off-ball scoring. I think he's a really good athlete. I think he will be a better defender in the NBA. Um or at least a more consistent defender. That might be the better way to put it. Uh, because when, when he locked in, he was really good. It was just, I think, with his offensive load and just the mentality of kind of going in and out of possessions, um, it was either really good or really forgettable. So I, I do think there's a lot to like defensively with him. But similar to you, I mean, like the guys I have ahead of him are guys that I think could, uh, the ones who are in similar positions, are ones that I think could already basically play that same three and D off ball role. But then I also think they just, they could potentially have a little bit more on ball upside. And that, that little bit of unknown is probably not fair necessarily to him, but it's what we get enamored by with the draft. And that's what similar to you, where it's like, God, it, it wouldn't make sense for Matherin to be, you know, number six on my board, but it's like, I, I just can't move him ahead of, you know, the rest of the guys I have in the top 10. Yeah. So I have Shaden Sharp, seven, AJ Griffin, eight, Jalen Duran nine and Benedict Matherin, 10. And, you know, I think if you were to ask me like Matherin probably has the highest, like 50th percentile outcome of that yeah. group in my mind, just because I think that there are serious flaws with the other three guys. I mean, Sharp, we literally didn't see him play a minute <laughs> of college basketball. It's all reliant on high school tape with, yep. AJ Griffin, the defense was very not good for most of the season. And, you know, he's athletic enough. And the fact that he came back after his early season injury was impressive. And his three point shooting is a tier above Matherin, I think. But AJ Griffin, I think, has a much higher likelihood of flaming out of the NBA than Matherin does. And same with Jalen Duran, where I think, you know, the 95th percentile outcome for Duran is much higher than it is for Matherin. But if we're talking about like 50th percentile, like what do I think is the most likely outcome of all of these four guys. I think Matherin probably has the best 50th percentile outcome. It's just when you're talking about a top 10 draft pick, you know, you're concerned about a lot more than just the 50th percentile outcome. If you're a team that, you know, needs a serious piece to sort of boost yourself another rung up the ladder. 
And and I think that last piece that you said is is the real, just the, the this incredibly important part of this whole draft eval where it's like, if if you are in the top 10 for the draft, that means your team sucked. And that means that you need some drastic changes and you- Or you got to a trade from the Lakers. <laughs> who, who sucked. Um, yeah, so I, so I, it, it, you kind of have to go superstar hunting and that just invites an added level of risk. So it, it's kind of funny that Matherin, you know, we're all really high on him at no ceilings and he's kind of become the safe prospect almost. Um, and I just, if you're in the top 10, I think you, there are bigger swings to take and there are a lot bigger payoffs that you could get that that's not meant as an insult to Matherin because getting a guy who will be a quality starter for eight or nine years of his 15 career or 15 year career or whatever you know that that's incredible value like that that's really rare to get from a prospect but I think a lot of us view him as that type of player however you know I I think AJ Griffin is already a better shooter off-ball shooter than him and I think there is some legitimate on-ball upside with him that Matherin hasn't shown in two years you know uh Shaden Sharp really freaky vertical athlete and again i think he's kind of already in the same tier of off-ball shooter as matherin um and then i look at a guy like malachi branham who is an elite off-ball shooter this year with elite pick and roll numbers so the just what he could be offensively it's like god the the you know is there a limit for what this guy can do because he's such a good passer really composed on ball and can do a bit of everything so to to no fault of Matherin's, he's just kind of cemented himself in like that 10, 11, 12 range for me of this draft because I I don't think he has that superstar upside that a couple of these guys potentially could. And it's funny because I was thinking about this recently for the Kings where if they end up with the seventh pick in the upcoming draft, and both Shaden Sharp and Benedict Matherin are still on the board. Ooh. I think the smart move is to take Benedict Matherin because yeah. you're a team that's had so many flameouts and you desperately need a solid off-ball shooter who can also play defense. They've had one or the other, you know, basically for the last five years, but never a player who, you know, sort of combined both like Matherin. The flip side is if you're the Kings, can you really afford to take Benedict Matherin at seven, you know, <laughs> hope that he's not the next Ben McElmore, hope that he's someone more consistent and solid than that. Yeah. And Shaden Sharp goes a pick later and ends up blowing up and becoming a superstar. And you've got egg all over your face. Like it's really difficult because I think that the choice that is going to be right more often than not in that case is Benedict Matherin. But if you're a team like the Kings where you're, out of the playoffs and have been out of the playoffs for a while and you need that star upside, can you really take Matherin? And again, it's, it's a very difficult decision to sort of try and wrap my head around, you know, just because I think that Matherin is the right choice doesn't mean that I wouldn't completely understand if they decide to go with Sharp. And again, I'm saying this with Shaden Sharp at seven on my board and Matherin at 10 on my board. You know, maybe it's just that I don't want to get hurt again, but like, <laughs> You know, it's it's a really difficult choice because when you're talking about Matherin, it's someone who we both believe will have a solid 
long-ish NBA career. Mm -hmm. And with Sharp, you know, the superstar upside is there and the flame out of the league potential is probably also there. You know, it's it's a very difficult sort of balance to try and strike there. That's a really fun scenario. And I I think just posing that question to people gives a ton of insight to what their kind of general draft philosophy is. Um, yeah, that's fun. Cause the, the, my problem, I, I agree that I think for today, Matherin is the, the, the choice there probably. Um, but does he really change the course of the franchise and does he really elevate them to potential, you know, actual playoff contenders, he might help them get in the playing game or, you know, into one of the top eight seeds, but I'm not sure he really elevates them to home court advantage. Whereas shade and sharp won't be making that as immediate of an impact, but four years from now, he could potentially change the course of that franchise. So that, that that's an incredibly fun scenario. Well, let's hope that the Kings are in a situation where they can make those choices and they don't, you know, I don't know, get the seventh pick and decide to go with, say, John Montero there. Oh, oh, don't don't put that evil on yourself. Don't do that. Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. We can leave the Jurgos Papianis in the past and try and move forward with a new era of Kings basketball. (laughs) Oh, you're just torturing yourself. Yeah, well, let's stop me torturing myself then and move on to the other Arizona prospect that I wanted to talk about today, Dalen Terry, who has rapidly risen up many draft boards, mostly due to how he played down the stretch run of the season for Arizona with Kirk Riza out. We at No Ceilings NBA had him at 23rd on our most recent big board. I have to admit that I'm not quite that high on him yet. I still see him as a second round guy, but there's definitely intriguing skills there. And that month when he had a much bigger role in the Arizona team structure, he was, he was very impressive, you know, solid playmaker, great size at six, seven, someone who in theory could fill a lot of roles for a team. I'm not fully bought in on that like month and a half or so of really good basketball when he was playing a bigger role to bump him into the first round. But Certainly, as our latest big board over at No Ceilings indicates, there are people who are very much bought in on him to that degree. Notably, our colleague Albert Gim has been decrying Dale and Terry from the rooftops for months now. Yeah, that that that's still a little rich uh, for my taste. Um, I, I I really like Terry. He I love the attitude and the intensity and competitiveness that he plays with. He's just one of those guys that you don't want to match up against. Um, I, I have him at 32 and I, I, I don't really buy the shot. His release timing is really inconsistent and he's got a lot of elbow flare going on. So I, I think there are meaningful changes and improvements that he needs to make, but you know, it's, it still feels silly to count out anyone from improving their shot now because everyone seems to do it. Yeah. And for, Top 20 is way too rich for me, but he he's really intriguing because he, he's got good size for a point guard. He's really good defender, a little out of control at times. Um, but I, I think his passing is the best trait that he brings to a team offensively. And, you know, um, Arizona ran this awesome back cut play a lot of t- a lot of the season where they would have Terry lift out of one corner to receive the DHO. And then he would, you know, circle around to the other wing 
kicked and a wing would lift out of the corner and then cut back door baseline. And Terry would deliver these awesome bounce passes through traffic and lead the guy right to the rim. So that passing accuracy and vision um, and consistency in those really tight windows was incredibly impressive. My only concern with this passing is I think it's a little reactionary and planned and not as intuitive and, you know, improvised. But the counter argument to that is that they ran those plays so frequently because of how good of a passer he is. And he, and he did show how insanely accurate and consistent he could be. Yeah. I think the playmaking is really the calling card here, especially given his size, you know, that him yeah. being able to make those passes and make those plays at his size is really what I think the draw is going to be for NBA teams, especially since the rest of his game, especially his shot needs a little bit of work. I think he's someone where if he doesn't end up staying in this draft and he goes back to school, I think he's someone that I will definitely have high on the radar as a potential first round pick for next year. But I think I would need to see a little bit more than that. Again, it was like a month and a half, two months, maybe even less of him actually getting real playing time for that Arizona offense. Again, I'm, you know, the flashes were certainly very impressive, but the existence of those flashes was only for a short period of time. And for most of the rest of the season, he spent most of the game's minutes on the bench. So I don't know. It's tough because the flashes are definitely there, but I think we're both on the same page with not quite having him at 23rd and needing to see a little bit more from him before we bump him up that high. So sorry. Sorry, Albert, if you get to this part of the podcast, uh, my apologies, but I want to see a little bit more from Terry. And and I think that's fair because with guys who have, you know, those more depleted roles for the majority of the season, it's tough to get a real gauge on why that is. Is it just because of the situation? Does the coach just for some reason trust player A more than player B? Or are they being put into these roles because of deficiencies that they can't do other things. I, I think that's a similar conversation that we have a lot with AJ Griffin where it's okay. Why did he not get more on ball reps? Was it because Duke just wanted to feed Wendell Moore and Paulo and we're just fine with AJ being this lethal off ball shooter or was it because he doesn't really have that in his game? So it, it when you're not, you know, in the gym with these guys, it's tough to get a real good grasp on it. Um, but I, I do think intangibles alone will make Terry kind of stick in the league. I think he's for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I don't hate the idea of him going in the first, it'd just be a little later than 23rd for me personally. Um, but if, if he returned to school and had the role and like, was that consistent starter, um, you know, he, he going into the season, he'd probably be a top 20 guy for me. All right. Anything else before we get to our plethora of plugs for the rest of the week? <laughs> I don't think so. You, you want to just plug away? So, yeah, why don't I'll get started on this. So tomorrow over at No Ceilings NBA, Tyler Metcalf will be hosting the No Ceilings NBA live reaction to the NBA draft lottery, which will be up in podcast feeds and on YouTube, etc. after that. I will also be hosting a No Ceilings NBA Twitter space tomorrow directly after the NBA draft. So go follow over at No Ceilings NBA and we will get started on that live stream directly after the draft lottery is in. 
I will also be writing a sleeper deep dives piece for this Thursday, which will probably be on Pete Nance. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Hopefully Pete Nance continues to play well in the League Ignite combine so that I can write good things about him for that. And then Tyler will have his usual Friday screener piece shock this Friday. So are you ready to talk about that one yet or no? No, Tyler is of course not. Of course not. Of course not. All right. Well, Tyler will have that Friday screener piece this Friday. So be on the lookout for that as well. Presumably it will be covering a potential NBA prospect and a potential skill for a potential NBA prospect. Confirmed. There we go. We we know that one. That's all. That's all I got. Fair enough. All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And you can find his work on No Ceilings NBA and Hashtag Basketball, as well as over at Canis Hoopus. Again, be on the lookout for the No Ceilings NBA live lottery reaction podcast that Tyler will be hosting tomorrow. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can find my written work on No Ceilings NBA and Hashtag Basketball, as well as over at Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.